you have your Bibles, I'll invite you to turn with me to John chapter 14. John chapter 14. If you're visiting us this morning and I've not had the privilege of meeting you, my name is John Sarver. I am one of the elders here at Midtown Baptist Church. John 14, beginning in verse 1, you can find that on page 957 of your pew Bibles. If you didn't bring a Bible, I would encourage you to follow along there. If you don't own a Bible, please take that as our gift to you this morning. John chapter 14, beginning in verse 1 and going through verse 7. When I was a young kid, there was a movie that I felt like constantly played on cable TV. I think they were trying to make up lost money because at the time of its release in 1995, it was the most expensive movie ever made, and it was a bit of a bust. Any guesses? Yeah. You got to say it louder. What is it? Waterworld. That's right. Uh, feel free to take a pew Bible home <laughs> as, our, as our gift to you, Mark Caballero. That's right, Waterworld, produced by and starring Kevin Costner. Now, I've never seen the movie from beginning to end. I've seen just little bits of it a hundred different times, enough that I get the gist. Global warming has melted the polar ice caps. It has left the earth covered in water. Those who survive live on the seas, okay, but they're not like on vacation in cruise ships. Uh, the people are split into clans or factions. They're competing over resources. Life is bleak. At this point, there's not even a shared memory of land. But some people hold out hope for a mythical place called the drylands. A place where you can set your feet on the ground, where vegetation springs out of the dirt, where there's easy access to drinking water, where there's no fear of drowning, where food and safety are in ample supply. The drylands. A place where life abounds. Kevin Costner, of course, finds it, aided by his gills and a tattoo that he finds on the back of a woman. Now you know. The idea of a promised land is common in dystopian genre. If you've not seen it in Waterworld, you've read about it or seen it somewhere else. Alpha Centauri and Lost in Space, The Oasis and the Planet of the Apes, The Green Place and Mad Max, The Tomorrow and Children of Men, The Undying Lands and Lord of the Rings, Beyond the Sea and A Quiet Place 2, Tomorrow in the Crudes, Wherever the Road Leads to in the Road. I don't know. I haven't seen it. We could add more. Why is this theme so pervasive? It is the, it is the human experience and longing. Storytellers tap into a shared sense of alienation and bewilderment that we experience in this world, and they draw from our hope for a better one. Another Christian better than anyone understands this collective motif. Right? As we watch or read on in this genre, we understand that this world is a wasteland. Not only that, we know why. Not only that, we know that there is, in fact, a green place, a sanctuary, a promised land. Not only that, we know how to get there. We know the journey is treacherous. We know pilgrims who have gone before us. We know what it is to travel by faith as, other tells, as others tell us that no such place exists. Right, the modernist is quick to educate us that it's a myth. It's fantasy. And yet they can't escape it in their films, their songs, their stories, or their hearts. 
Humanity collectively knows that this isn't home. Folklore and religion around the world for all of time have written about an Ordovus axis, another world, Elysium, Vanhala, paradise, moksha, Brahmin, heaven. Why? Humanity desperately hopes and knows there's a better place where things are as they ought to be, where there's no sin or sickness, no disease or death, where there's nothing to fear, where there's only life. Jesus in our text this morning tells us what and where our hearts long for and how to get there. In fact, Jesus does the unthinkable to make it possible. He flips the genre upside down as he leaves paradise and goes into the wasteland. As he leaves the light and goes into darkness, as he moves from refuge to danger, from heaven to earth, that he might make and show us a way to get home. He takes us to himself by means of himself. This is the gospel according to John John chapter 14, if you're able, I will invite you to stand with me for the reading of Holy Scripture. What we are about to hear is neither myth nor lore, but the very words of God written down to help us get home. Hear God now. John chapter 14, beginning in verse 1. Don't let your heart be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I am going to prepare a place for you? If I go away to prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, so that where I am, you may be also. You know the way to where I'm going. Lord Thomas said, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? Jesus told him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you know me, you will also know my Father. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. This is the word of God. Praise be to God. You can be seated. Verse 1 begins with a command. Don't. Let your heart be troubled. Why are the disciples' hearts troubled? Well, for context, we find ourselves in what has commonly been called the upper room discourse. Martin Luther called these three chapters the most beautiful, the best, and most comforting sermon delivered by Christ while on earth. Why the trouble them? The upper room discourse is really a response to what just happened in preparation for what is coming. In John chapter 13, we saw that Judas has left the 12 to betray Christ. Jesus then explains to his disciples who he's been with for years in verse 33 that he'll only be with them a little while longer. That where he's going, verse 34, they cannot come. At least not yet. Jesus then adds to this that Peter, the rock of the 12, is going to sink. He will betray Christ not once but three times. Jesus will appear to lose on all fronts as his disciples fail and flee, as his enemies capture and kill him. It's not just that Jesus is leaving. 
but how that will trouble their hearts. Think about it. If you saw him who promised you life eternal, life incorruptible, dying, you would be troubled too. But of course we know what looks like failure is victory. Jesus secured our salvation as he died on the cross, as he rose from the dead, as he ascended to the Father in heaven. What we really need to grasp in this section, though, is verse 33, that Jesus is leaving them. Try to let that sink in, the Jesus that they walked with and prayed with and ate with and laughed with and cried with and ministered with, the Jesus they put their hope in who taught them and trained them, their rabbi and their friend, their Messiah and king, he's leaving them. This is probably not something that we think about enough. Yes, Jesus is always, brothers and sisters, he is always, always with us by means of the Holy Spirit. We're about to see that in the coming chapters. The Father and Son, they come and make a home with us by means of the Spirit. But Jesus is bodily absent. The God-man is in heaven. Like Jesus doesn't come to my house for dinner. We need to reckon with both his real spiritual presence and his real bodily absence if we are going to long for heaven and for him more and more. Brothers and sisters, are you aware of his presence by means of his spirit? Are you aware of his bodily absence? Like, do you long to see Jesus with your eyes? To be embraced by him after death? to walk next to him in the new Jerusalem, to feast with him in the marriage supper? Do you want to be with Jesus as much as you possibly can? Jesus expects, he expects us to feel troubled because that's how badly we want to be in his presence. That's how eagerly we are to desire the fullness of the kingdom. And so Jesus in this text, he gives us a remedy for our sadness and our fear. How do we live on earth when our home is with Jesus in heaven? That's the question we'll ask of the text this morning in lieu of a big idea. How do we live on earth when our home is with Jesus in heaven? Two encouragements. Long for heaven and look to Jesus. How do we live on earth when our home is with Jesus in heaven? Long for heaven, look to Jesus. Long for heaven and look to Jesus. First, we long for heaven. We start in verse 1. Do not let your heart be troubled. Jesus knows that in this life, as we walk through this world, that our hearts will be prone to fear and to doubt. Brothers and sisters, can you relate to this? Life in a fallen world provides plenty of reasons for anxiety. I feel like I'm constantly unlocking new fears, things I didn't know I was supposed to be afraid of. Every day seems to bring potential for more harm. New wars overseas, novel diseases at home, highs for homicides in our cities, larger natural disasters, 
a struggling economy, pernicious threats to our children, growing hostility to Christians. Add to this an enemy who is ever devoted to destroying us by means of false and wicked teachers who abound. The cause for concern as we live outside of heaven is high. The cause for concern as we live outside of heaven is high. You won't see verse 1 decorating the homes of heaven. There will be no sources of trouble when we are with Jesus. It's while we're here that we have reason for fear and sadness. And yet Jesus commands us what? Verse 1. Don't let your heart be troubled. How is that possible? Jesus provides the remedy for our fears. If you look at verse 1, believe in God, believe also in me. Jesus teaches us. He commands us where to go when we're anxious. We go to God in faith, resting in the sweet promises that he's given us in his word. You see, faith in God is the remedy to fear in the world. If anxiety is the fear of losing control, If it's the fear of potential pain, faith is the recognition that we already lack control. That God possesses all of it. That he is controlling and moving everything toward our good, even if sometimes it means a little bit of pain. In faith, we trust that God is the king and that it's good news for us. His promises are the remedies for our pain. Brothers and sisters, this is not a platitude It is the foundation of reality. You may deny the sun is shining during an eclipse, but if you look at it, you will go blind. His promises are the remedies for our pain. Brothers and sisters, what do you do when your heart feels troubled? When you're worried about whether or not you'll make it through this trial, when it doesn't seem like you'll make it to tomorrow, let alone heaven, When you're overwhelmed and grieved by the sin and evil around us, do you trust in God or something else? This is one of the things that as parents we're fervently trying to teach our children. That when our hearts are troubled, when they're shaky, that we go to God. That his promises are sufficient to deal with our pain and our fears. Small children are prone to all kinds of fears, right? They can be as little as, like, is that monster on TV real? Maybe as big, big to them, big to us too, meeting new people in a new classroom, on a new team. Sometimes they learn about the heartache of the world that grieves them. Just last Sunday, I was driving to Overton Chapel from our house, and I had Haddon and Pavey, it's our seven and five-year-old in the car, about to be seven and six. And Pavey and Haddon saw the people outside of Planned Parenthood, and she asked me what they were doing. When our kids ask us questions, we give them real answers. We explain that some people in the world today think it's okay to kill babies in the womb. We explain that those are Christians there, that they're pleading with people and praying with them so that they would not kill their babies. They're made in the image of God. They deserve to live. We get to Overton Chapel. I look back. Pavy is weeping. She's weeping. I said, Pavey, what's wrong? She said, I'm scared. She said she was scared, particularly for some of the babies at NBC. I explained to her that the babies in our church are safe. 
We love babies in the womb. Right, new fear unlocked. We've taught them to do three things when they feel troubled. If you're prone to anxiety, you might write these down. First, God talks to me. Second, I talk to God. Third, I trust God and walk with him in faith. They've memorized Isaiah 41.10. First, God talks to me. They They recite it. Do not fear, for I am with you. Do not be afraid, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will hold on to you with my righteous right hand. That's not our children giving themselves a pep talk. Those are the words of God. God is speaking to you when you recite his promises. It is God telling you, you need not fear. I am with you. I, the God of the universe, am with you. I'm your God. Me, the source of all strength, I will strengthen you. The great helper, the spirit will help you. I will hold on to you and I am not letting go. And I always, I always do what is right. God talks to me. Then we teach them to talk to God. God, I confess that I fear others, that I don't trust you. Would you help me to believe that you are with me, that you are holding on to me? In Jesus' name, amen. And then they aim to walk in faith by God's grace. Hear from God in his promises. Talk to God. Trust in God. Brothers and sisters, when your heart is troubled, believe in God the Father and his Son. His promises are sufficient to deal with every pain and problem. In this text, Jesus gives us, those of us who feel troubled in this world, a series of promises to cling to. They start in verse 2. Jesus has told them he's leaving, that they can't come with him, at least not yet. They're troubled. Jesus responds, verse 2, in my father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I'm going to prepare a place for you? In my Father's house are many rooms. Are you troubled in the world? Jesus tells you to look to heaven. Are you troubled by poverty, by war in Israel, by rising crime, by poor health? First, look to heaven. Heaven is beyond what we can even fathom in our current state. Like, we don't know what we don't know yet. We don't know what we can't yet know. As sinful and frail as we are, but God in his kindness gives us images of what it's going to be like. How does he describe it? It's the Father's house. Brothers and sisters, how often do you think about heaven as the Father's home? It's not just anybody's home, it's the Father's home, and it's your Father's home. What does that make it for you? Paul tells us in Galatians chapter 4, when the time came to completion, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God sent the spirit of a son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave but a son, and if a son, then God has made you an heir. Heaven is not just anybody's home, it's yours. What else do we know about it? Jesus tells us there are many rooms. There are many rooms. In the U.S., home values are an all-time high. Interest rates are at a 20-year high. You know this if you've tried to buy a house or sell your house. 
Unless you have liquid wealth, buying a home is difficult. It's painful. It's heartbreaking. It's full of frustrations and uncertainties. Brothers and sisters, there is a home, a piece of real estate and peace that you can count on. It is full of enough rooms for us all. Think about how many wealthy people on this earth have massive, empty mansions. That is not what heaven will be like because that is not what our God is like. Not only is it big enough for us, verse 2, it's being made ready for us. I am going to prepare a place for you. Think about that. Jesus is preparing a place for his people right now. Now, depending on what kind of parents or grandparents you have, you probably understand this feeling. When I visit, when we visit my parents in Dallas, my parents prepare the house for us. Like, we don't show up having to put sheets on beds. We've never had to set up baby gates. We don't have to bring our own food. My mom goes out of her way to stock all of our favorite things, more than we need. One of our favorite late-night snacks, it's like this easy Mexican dish. It's cucumber with lime salt, chili peppers, pepino, limon, salt, chile. If you know, you know. My mom buys enough cucumber and lime to feed an army. (laughs) My kids love mangoes. There's enough for them to eat every day for a week and then for us to bring them back home. My dad gets new puzzles, stem toys, crafts for the kids. They think about everything for everyone, including our dog. The home is prepared for us so there isn't work to do. We simply get to rest. As momentary as it is, right, to feel safe, to feel comforted, to feel cared for. A sliver of heaven on earth. And as we've come to learn, our family, especially since COVID, we are always, we are always, always welcome in their house. Brothers and sisters, if this is what earthly parents do for us, what do you think your heavenly home is going to be like when God himself is the one preparing it for you? We can't even fathom how glorious it will be. The kind of rest that awaits us. The kind of healing that will swallow us up. The love that we will drink in. Home is coming, but it's not here. Jesus is preparing, look again, verse 2 and 3, a place for you. Brothers and sisters, you see how personal that is. He's preparing a place for you. Like, have you ever showed up somewhere to find out that your reservation was lost? That they double booked you? Or worse yet, that you were scammed? I just described three of the samples of vacations. <laughs> no joke. Too soon, I don't know. And brothers and sisters, if you are in Christ Jesus, when you die, there is... There is no need for concern about whether or not heaven has room for you. This is why Jesus came. John chapter 6, verse 38. I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose none of those he has given me, but should raise them up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him will have eternal life. And I will. I will, I will raise him up 
on the last day. Jesus came for his brothers and sisters, and he is not leaving a single one. The will of the Father is that the Son will bring all of his children home, and his will does not fail. Brothers and sisters, take great comfort. Your name was written down in eternity past in the mind of God. Your name was carried to the cross of the fullness of time. Your name was called by Christ through the Spirit at your conversion. And your name has a room in heaven. It's waiting for you. Are you waiting for it? Jesus has prepared a place for us in his Father's house, in his home. He came for us. Even in his leaving us, it's to do us good. And he will come again. We see this in verse 3. If you look at the text, if I go away and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself so that where I am, you may be also. Think about the lengths to which Christ went to prepare a place for us. God the Son became the Son of Man. The lawgiver subjected himself to the law. The judge of the world hung like a criminal. He who has life himself died. If Jesus did all that, will he not come again for us? He will. Jesus' words are meant to comfort those who are troubled by his absence. His words can only help those who don't feel at home in the world. They can only strengthen those who are making their pilgrimage to heaven. If his words don't comfort you, it's because you're too comfortable here. The Christian should actually be characterized by a kind of restlessness in the world. A kind of restlessness that cannot be brought to rest in this world. Our family loves a series of books by Andrew Peterson called The Wingfeather Saga. The books follow a family, the Igbys, who live in a time and place where these monstrous creatures, the fangs, rule the world. Toward the end of the first book, there's this scene where the patriarch of the family, the grandfather, Poto, is dying from wounds that he received in battle, fighting to protect his daughter and his three grandchildren from the fangs. Now, Poto knows that his time has come. And so he asks his daughter to sing him a song. He knows, in fact, it seems like all their time has come. They're being besieged. Now, to grasp this song, you have to understand not only is Poto a widower, but his daughter, Nia, is also a widow. Her husband, the high king of Anir, gave himself up in battle so that she and the kids could flee, so that they could live, so that they could escape to exile. So she sings to her dying father as one who also misses her husband and his homeland. This is what she sings. My love has gone across the sea to find a country far and fair. He sailed into the gilded west and lo, my heart will never rest until my love returns to me or I set out to find him there. Come home, come home, I sing to thee, my love, come home and rest thy head. I'll watch for you the winter long and sing for you a summer song. And if you can't return to me, then I will sail to you instead. Through towering wave and shriek of gale, I'll aim my vessel ever west. And steered by the cord that bound my heart to yours until you're found. 
And should you find my body pale and wrecked upon the loamy shale, rejoice, my love, and call me blessed. In death, my love, I loved you best. The meaning of the song is so obvious, we used it to catechize our children. I would ask them a series of questions to get a series of answers. Haddon, what is this song about? It's about Nia's love going to find a better land. And Haddon, how does she feel about him leaving? She's sad and restless. Why? Because she misses her love. Haddon, what is she going to do? She's going to wait. But what if he doesn't come? She's going to go and find him and their home. But what if she dies? She will die happily. Why? Because she's going to her love and that land. Haddon, how is this a parable of the Christian life? Jesus is our love. Jesus is our love and he has found a better land for us in heaven. Haddon, how do we feel about him leaving? We're sad and we're restless. What do we do? We wait for him. What if he doesn't come? We go to him. But what if we die? Adam replies, and we die happily. Because we've gone to our love and to his land. Jesus assumes that our longing for him and for heaven will be so strong that we'll be restless here. We can't ever be finally and fully happy here because we were made for heaven. This place is not our home. And so he gives us a promise. I'm leaving you for a little while to prepare a place for you. And verse 3, I will come again and take you to myself so that where I am you may be also. Jesus wants you to be where he is at. Jesus assumes that you want to be where he is at. Jesus indeed will come for his people. If we live to see his return, as Paul describes in 1 Thessalonians 4, we will be caught up to the clouds to meet him and to be with him forever. If we die before he returns, we'll go to be with him. Paul tells us 2 Corinthians 5, 8, to be away from the body is to be at home. It is to be at home with the Lord. Either way, Jesus leads us to himself by means of himself. It's as we just sang, and he leadeth me. And when my task on earth is done, when by thy grace the victory is won, even death's cold waves I would not flee, since God through Jordan leadeth me. He leads us to himself by means of himself. This is why we don't just long for heaven, but we look to Jesus. Brothers and sisters, look to Jesus. Jesus goes on in verse 4. He says, you know the way to where I'm going. Now you expect it to be Peter. It's actually Thomas. Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? Now this is a bit of a side from the main point of the sermon, but don't miss this. Thomas confesses his doubt and his confusion to Christ. And he puts himself in position to hear from Jesus. And we get one of the clearest self-disclosures of Christ in the whole of Scripture. No doubting Thomas, no John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. 
This is the way to work through doubts, humbly confessing them to God in the presence of his people so that we can hear back from God in his word. Right? Show me someone who has left the faith because of doubts, and I will show you someone who nine times out of ten wrestled with their Bibles closed and away from healthy churches. Thomas is actually a model for us, fallen creatures who will naturally doubt God and his promises. What begins with troubled hearts and confused minds ends in comfort and clarity. This happens when we put ourselves in position to hear from Jesus where he speaks so loudly, in his word, in sacrament, in the church. Thomas says we actually don't know where you're going. How could we possibly know the way? And so Jesus clarifies, verse 6. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus tells them he's returning to the Father, and the means by which we get there is Christ. Now, we've been knowing where Jesus is going. John told us in John 13, 1, Jesus knew that his hour to come and to depart from this world to the Father. Jesus here makes it explicit to his disciples. He's leaving the world to return to the Father from whom he came. That's where he's going. That's where he's preparing a place for us. How do we get to his home? The answer is Jesus. It's only Jesus. It'll only ever be Jesus. Why? Verse 6. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus here is really pulling together various strands from his ministry that we've seen in the Gospel of John to give us a full picture of his person and his mission. Jesus is the way by means of truth and life. You could really summarize his ministry by these two words, truth and life. Jesus is the truth. He's not a truth, he's the truth. He doesn't merely say true things. Rather, he is truth itself. Why? Because he's God. As God, Jesus is the clearest revelation of God. We saw this in John 1.18. No one has ever seen God, the one and only Son who is himself God and is at the Father's side. He has revealed him. What had been impossible for man to gaze upon God God made possible for us by becoming one of us that we might see and grasp him in the Son. Jesus is the truth. John 12, 49, Jesus only says what he hears the Father saying. John 5, 19, Jesus only does what he sees the Father doing. John 10, 30, Jesus and the Father are one. Jesus is God's perfect wisdom and word. He is his eternally begotten Son, he is of the same substance or essence of the Father, such that to know the Son, verse 7, is to know the Father, such that to see the Son is to see the Father, verse 9. Jesus is the light of the world. That's what this metaphor has been getting at. He's the truth. John 8, 12, he is guiding his people through the wilderness to the land of promise by revealing the way which is himself. Brothers and sisters, Jesus is the truth. And he's not a truth that can be relativized. Jesus is not my truth or your truth. He's just the truth. He's not ours to edit or redact or modify as our feelings or folly 
see fit. With Isaiah, we confess who has been his counselor or known the mind of God, not us. Jesus is the truth because he is God in flesh. He has come down low in a way that we can grasp. Not one of many truths, but the truth. There is one set of saving knowledge, and it is news about Jesus Christ. Jesus is the truth, and he is the life. Jesus is the life. Jesus as God has life in himself. We saw this, John 5, 26. Jesus as God gives life to all as the creator of all things created. John 1, 2 through 4. Jesus as the God-man died for the sin of the world. John 3, 16. That we might not die but have life eternal. Jesus as the God-man rose from the grave like a lion from his slumber. He is the resurrection and the life, John 10, 25. Such that whoever believes in him, though he dies, will live. Whoever believes in him will live and never die. Jesus is God the Son. He gives eternal life, which is friendship with God. Union with him, John 17, 3. Jesus, as the creator of all things, the sustainer of all things, the savior of all things, isn't one life among many. He is life itself. That we live for a moment on earth and will forever in heaven is a gift that flows from him and him alone. Jesus is the truth. Jesus is the life. This is why he is not a way but the way. The journey to heaven isn't simply hidden in darkness. It's not simply on the other side of death. It's one that we cannot make ourselves because we have sinned against our God and our sin has separated us from him. It is our rebellion that has cut us off from him. We rejected him. Isaiah 53, 6 tells us that we chose our own way. And so God in his kindness, in his mercy, in his goodness, in his love has made a way, the way for us to be forgiven of our wrongs and restored to him. There is one way for us to live eternal. How is it possible, John 1.35, Jesus as the Lamb of God took away the sin of the world. Jesus, John 10, he then rose from the grave. What we could not do for ourselves, God himself has done for us in Christ. Jesus bore the punishment of our sins on the cross. Jesus rose from death, defeating it for all of his people. Not only that, he has returned to heaven so that we might go there to be with him. He has made a journey that no one else ever could do by themselves. John 3, 13, no one has ascended into heaven except the one who descended from heaven. We can only make the journey not with him, but in him. You see, when we believe in Jesus, we become so wrapped up in him that his history, his present, his future, they all become ours. His journey to the cross became ours. His resurrection from the grave became ours. His life becomes ours. His ascension to the throne in heaven becomes ours. His father's home becomes ours. As we'll soon see, his spirit, the bond of love, becomes ours. Jesus is not a way. He is the way. This is why he says, no one comes to the father except through me. 
No one else comes to the Father except through Christ. No one else has come from the Father but Him. No one else could reveal the Father but Him. No one else could atone for sins but Him. No one else could make a mockery of death but Him. No one else but Him could crush the head of the serpent. No one else could ascend to the throne in heaven but Him. And He has made a way for all of us to do this in Him. Jesus is the only way. A non-Christian friend, the, the one thing we want you to hear this morning is that the worst lie that you could believe is that there is a way for your sins to be forgiven, that there is a way for you to make it to heaven by any other means than Jesus. It's simply not true. We tell you this in love. Jesus Christ has done for you what you could not do yourself. He lived perfectly. He died then for your punishment, though he was innocent. He bore the judgment of God. He rose in victory. He offers you life today as a gift. We would plead with you to turn from your sins and to trust in him. You see, God is not one mountain to which many rivers flow. God is the one mountain that every sinner flees. And God in his kindness has descended the mountain to make away to himself. He is the one God who was created, the one God who sustains, the one God who will judge, the one God who has made a way to himself by means of himself. Peter grasped this. This is why he preached in Acts 4.12, there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. Do you think if there was another way if Peter misunderstood Jesus, that he would have been crucified upside down? Do you think Stephen would have been stoned, James beheaded, doubting Thomas speared by soldiers, John, our gospel writer, boiled alive in oil? They would have chosen the other way, the easier way. Give me the Roman deities, but there is no other way because there is no other world-creating, sin-bearing, death-defeating way-making God, but the God of the Bible. Non-Christian friend, we would implore you to trust in Jesus today. Brothers and sisters, do you believe this? Do you share that Jesus is the truth with those whom you know are not Christians? Do you share that he's the life? Are you willing to put yourself at risk to share the good news of the gospel with those who do not know him? Do you give to your church into missions like this is the one saving message? Have you yourself considered going to unreached parts of the world to tell them about God's love and Savior? There is no other name given to people by which we must be saved. Those who trust in other names will do so to their shame. We hold back this news to our great shame. The gospel is unequivocally exclusive. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, period. And the gospel is unequivocally inclusive. Jesus is not sharing this news to promote arrogance among his people. He's not telling them this to bum them out about heaven. He's making them know that there is indeed a way. That God himself has made a way. Why is Jesus sharing this? Verse 1. Don't let your hearts be troubled. 
believe in God. Believe also in me. Jesus is comforting his people. Why did he descend? Why did he die? Why did he rise and ascend? Why did he leave us? He's done so to make a way for us. Brothers and sisters, if you believe in Jesus, then your home in heaven is waiting. It is a guarantee. Jesus has made the way for all kinds of people under heaven to be saved. Why has he delayed his return to us? Because the Father's house is so big. There are too many rooms just for us. Too many rooms just for first century Jews. It was too big for those who would believe in the Roman Empire during the fourth century. Too large to only add Europe or Africa or the Americas or Asia. It is big enough and wonderful enough that it should compel all of us to invite others to join us. What will our home and family look like in heaven? Hear about it in Revelation chapter 7, our same gospel writer. After this I looked and there was a vast multitude from every nation, tribe, people, and language which no one could number. Standing before the throne and before the Lamb, they were clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and they cried out in a loud voice. Salvation belongs to our God who is seated on the throne and to the Lamb. All the angels stood around the throne and along with the elders and the four living creatures, they fell face down before the throne and worshiped God saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and strength be to our God forever and ever. Amen. John 14, 6 is written to comfort us that if we have Jesus, if he came for us, if he's gone back to heaven for us, he will come again. We know the way. And the way is not a set of directions we can memorize and discard. It is a person. We are known by him, chosen by him, loved by him, wrapped up in him, united to him like a body to a head, like a branch to a vine, like a spouse to her love. If he's gone through so much trouble to prepare a place for us, will he not come back again for us? He will. Whether we die or he returns while we live, he will come for us. We will make it home. Brothers and sisters, we will make it home. I'm convinced that there's, there's no feeling like home. If you've ever been kicked out of your house for weeks or months or longer, you know that restlessness, right? Nothing beats that feeling of walking back into your home for the first time. Of being greeted with familiar smell, of seeing pictures or faces of the ones you love. Nothing like falling asleep on your bed. Right, the feeling of home is the feeling of belonging, of rest, of peace, of security. It's a feeling that we all long for because it's what we were made for. This place is not our home. Josh Carroll's has beautifully written the song Home at Last to put lyrics to the way that we feel. But unlike the dystopian genre, Geralt understands that a real place awaits us. It's the home of our Father. He writes, who is there at the end of lonesome roads? 
all of us hope there's a home, a place to rest where wounds get dressed, the table's full, the sound of laughter in the halls. We are orphans looking for an open door. Hard times come no more. Come on up to the house of the Lord. Father adopts us all. Light the fire, gather round, join together singing love. Raise the glass and joyful be. Home at last, one family. Brothers and sisters, home is waiting for us. Christ will come for us. We are only passing through this place to a better land. Heaven is our home. God is our Father. The Son will come again. May it be soon. Let's pray.